you got Problems that you ought to be concerned with Moolah! You don't know how you're supposed to earn it Or what to do with it Or how to keep it You're a freak with a dark, shameful secret But you're not the only one Get your hidden financial fears With a blast of sun Now your healing has begun It's bad with money with Gabby Dunn Hello! I'm Gabby Dunn Welcome to Bad With Money A show about finances and feelings where we don't talk down to you. Well, y'all, we avoided it long enough. The time has come for a series of episodes about crypto. Wait! Don't go! Don't turn this off! This is going to get very interesting and very intense, I promise. For example... Our first guest this week is Stefan Thomas, an entrepreneur and programmer who became famous after he was locked out of his crypto wallet and lost access to about $200 million. That's the big headline. All the media was covering it. Thomas has spent the last few years publicizing his plight. He cannot take out or use $200 million sitting there in a digital wallet he owns. He lost the unique key, and getting it back relies on him remembering the password to an almost unbreakable iron key drive that will wipe its entire contents after 10 password tries. He's currently on password try number 8, and then he loses the 7,000 Bitcoin, aka the $200 million, forever. Because it's Bitcoin, there's no one he can call. No customer service, no lawyers, no one but himself, and maybe some code crackers he can hire for huge fees to try and break into his iron key on the mere chance the key to his wallet is in there. He's not even 100% sure of that, but it's his best chance. For now, the money he acquired years ago and that has grown in worth ever since sits there, unable to be used by anyone. To understand Stefan's reality, we need to understand the design and origins of Bitcoin. Because this isn't a bug in the system. It's how it's supposed to work. Now you guys know me. You know I love a deep dive. But I just couldn't bring myself to do the work to bring you the nitty gritty on crypto. For about a decade, I've ignored Bitcoin. Straight up ignored it in my real life, and on this show. First, it was out of a misplaced idea, like most financial parts of life, that it was beyond my understanding and comprehension. I was too stupid. And I was too busy surviving day-to-day to worry about, like, Dogecoin or whatever. I needed to understand how to do the financial work that would materially matter in my life and not get involved in anything that wasn't tangible. And second, I avoided crypto out of annoyance. The people involved, the most vocal of them, were all people I did not admire or aspire to be. And then NFTs came along, and their popularity peaked in the last year, and after all the money education I'd put myself through since 2016, I had an inkling that NFTs were a new way to scam. A new way to scam the average person as rich people became richer, as we talk about a lot on this show. That was my first thought. I lost my mind at the sheer amounts of money being paid between crypto billionaires and anonymous buyers who somehow had world hunger ending money to spend on whims. The incoming wave of Web3 being pitched as an idealistic concept and not a reshuffling of existing structures didn't make sense. None of it made sense. A meme selling for half a million dollars? Who the hell had 69 million to spend on pixels? 
Who were these random men positioning themselves as breakers of systems, leaders of new worlds? And why did so many of them seem to come from traditional tech with the promise that this would open doors for anyone else? I'm trans, so I love The Matrix. If you're not trans and you also love The Matrix, that's fine. I accept you. But I am primed for this. I love the concept of decentralizing money. I love futurism. But futurism works when it takes into account bettering the world for the people it's not currently working for. Hence, the future. And every movie has shown that at its worst, it facilitates greed and further destruction. So I wanted to present Stefan, both a skeptic of the current system and a builder remaining in the space to try and repair some gaps, alongside our second guest, trans digital artist Clara Volstead, who entered the NFT space to make money off her fine art. As an aside, part two of this series will be next week with Folding Ideas video researcher Dan Olson, whose line goes up the problem with NFTs is at 7 million views and climbing. His video, two and a half hours long, is my favorite movie right now. I've watched it three times all the way through. It is the best breakdown and takedown of crypto and NFTs I've ever seen. And it's accessible to anyone wanting to learn exactly why their gut makes them uneasy about the crypto world as it stands today. And we're going to get into it with him deeply next week. Dan is someone I mostly agree with. But Clara, Clara gave me pause. Our conversation in today's episode touches not just on non-fungible tokens, aka what NFT stands for, and what they actually are, and whether or not they're a scam, but also into the trans ideal of controlling your image, owning the way other people perceive you if you're unhappy with how you perceive yourself, and tapping the big online community to better your physical life, not just to get rich. NFTs are a big problem, and we'll get into that with Dan next week. Not just climate change, but also as a sort of pyramid scheme, but in the fine art world, the one that isn't random images of apes, the one that contains the inner expression of Clara's mind to be traded for currency, that I'm open to hearing more about. Although some sites have concluded that NFTs are the equivalent of betting speculatively on mass delusion of JPEG ownership, even I think of that as an exaggerated read. The traditional, non-digitally native art world has always been about hype and rarity. It's always been about overpricing and predicting what might be worth millions one day. There's the persistent rumor and probable truth that the money in the traditional fine art world moves solely within that world like a joke that it's all just money laundering. The money stays among the collectors and the art is decided as expensive among themselves. And this is NFTs with a splash of multi-level marketing and get-rich-quick schemes. Is it all kind of just money laundering? Since I conducted these interviews a little while ago, there's been much made about the collapsing NFT market. Yahoo Finance reported on May 19th that the NFT market is getting obliterated amid a crypto crash. Gaming website Kotaku cited not only a 92% fall in sales, but also the extraordinary drop of active wallets by 88% since November. The headlines were nonstop and smug, much like Stefan's headlines. In general, the stock market's been crashing for the last few years, and this year especially. NFTs and crypto aren't special. Which is the whole issue, isn't it? It was all supposed to be different. But people are generally nervous. Many experts interviewed say they're liquidating their assets, taking them out of the market because they, like Stefan gets into in our interview, have no guarantee that an asset like an NFT won't drop to zero. It very well could. 
It's about what we've, or the people involved, have decided has value, art, versus what has inherent value, like a home, let's say. These interviews are a small introduction to what we're going to submerge ourselves into next week. And we'll hear the other side. The manufactured and straight-up lying media and marketing, the pyramid scheme of it all, the rich getting richer instead of the democratizing of a dream. Stay tuned. But first, Stefan Thomas. Hi, my name is Stefan Thomas. I'm a software developer and entrepreneur. Okay, cool. And this show can get extremely basic, but can we talk about, like, if you had to summarize, what is cryptocurrency? Oh, wow. Yeah. Easy question to start, right? <laughs> so cryptocurrency really is just currency that's not created by a government. And the crypto part in it uh, kind of hints at how it is created instead. So crypto comes from cryptography, uh, the idea that you use mathematics to give certain guarantees, certain features that you want to create in a piece of software. And so uh, cryptocurrency is essentially a uh, currency that's created by software that's running in, in a network between people as opposed to by some sort of authority or government. What was the reason that it was created? Alleged, like, you know, like if you had to give like a reason that, you know, regular money was not working for people. Really, cryptocurrency starts to at least gain major traction with the, the creation of Bitcoin. And so we can take some hints from who uh, or what the, the creators of the creator or creators of Bitcoin intended from the paper that accompanied the initial release, which is the Bitcoin white paper, as well as uh, there was when when the Bitcoin system was first launched, there was sort of a, an arbitrary headline that the creator picked to uh, signify that moment and prove that they hadn't been pre-generating they were running the network ahead of time before anyone else had a chance to. And the headline they picked was about a bank bailout. So, and this is like 2009. So you can sort of imagine that it had a little bit to do with what was going on with the financial system, like kind of how people felt about bailouts and things like that and feeling like, you know, the, the, the banks get saved when when things come come crashing down and the regular person doesn't. And so the idea was to create a system that you know, for better or for worse, doesn't have a bailout. So nobody gets treated in a special way. Yeah. So you your story begins with you working on something and getting paid in Bitcoin, right? Can you start at the very beginning, like what year that was, what people were thinking about Bitcoin at that time, what you thought about Bitcoin at that time? So for me, I got into it because I was a freelancer. I was making websites for small businesses and um, getting paid hourly. And oftentimes as a freelancer, you subcontract other freelancers all around the world. And I experienced a lot of problems like trying to pay people when you're trying to pay people in places like Asia, Africa, um, it is really hard to get the money there without paying huge fees, uh, huge delays and so on. And, and I'm sure some listeners can know exactly what I'm talking about. And so the, the appeal for me was here's a project. It's a community grassroots type project where people are trying to say it's enough, enough is enough. Let's come up with something that works a little bit better. Now, obviously that was 
more than 10 years ago and so that, that might not necessarily be how i feel about it today but that was what originally appealed to me within uh, when i heard about bitcoin so you got paid in bitcoin it was like seven thousand something bitcoins which at the time was worth what and then what ended up happening like when did you remember you you had them and like what what linearly occurred when i first found out about it um it really was a very small community and so one of the things that everyone was very concerned about is like for this to work people have to actually know it exists and so how do we kind of explain it to people and that cause people to put together, pool some money together and say, let's make an animated video. Anyone who can make an animated video, you're going to win this uh, amount of Bitcoin. Honestly, like at the time, Bitcoin didn't even really have like an exchange rate. Um, so like you, you couldn't just convert between Bitcoin and dollars. I mean, you could sort of look at, you know, oh, somebody just bought a pizza for or two pizzas for 10,000 Bitcoins. Like, OK, a Bitcoin must be worth like, you know, one hundredth of a cent or something like that. But there wasn't like an established price in that era. And then later on, uh, when we actually, you know, I, I teamed up with a friend of mine, a very good friend of mine, uh, Fabian Rude, and we made the video and we put it out there and, um, you know, people liked it a lot. And so we ended up getting that bounty. And so by the time we got it was, um, I think it was like February or March 2011. And by that time, you know, there were exchanges uh, or, or one big one, mostly Mt. Gox. And um, there was an established Bitcoin price and it was roughly one to one. So one dollar, one Bitcoin roughly. And then when did you and then you and then you got paid and then you just forgot about it and you were working on your own stuff? Yeah. So, again, like my interest in Bitcoin wasn't to make a lot of money or, you know, my, my interest was I had experienced a lot of problems with payments and I felt like this was an opportunity to make it better. And so at the time, you know, in order to use Bitcoin, you had to download the Bitcoin software and then you had to run it for several days and it would like your computer would work really hard and get really hot during those several days. And it wasn't a very good user experience, basically. And so I decided, you know, I'm a software engineer, I can help improve that. And so I worked on a way um, to use Bitcoin in your browser. So like you don't have to download anything, any scary files, like you can just run it, uh, go to a website and use it that way while still maintaining your own keys. Now, I'm throwing out a lot of jargon here. So if you don't understand what I'm saying, basically, I wanted to contribute as a developer. Right. And the wallet is where it's kept. And the key is your personal, this is how people pay you, your personal identification? Yeah, so the way that these cryptocurrencies work is it's essentially like, imagine if we all got together and instead of a bank recording transactions, like I paid you, so now your balance goes down and my balance go, uh, and your balance goes up. Instead of that, we all keep a ledger. So we all keep a copy of that ledger and we just make sure that they're somehow in sync. They're not gonna, like every transaction is recorded by everyone in the group. Um, well, how would we know that anyone owns any particular account? Well, they'd have to identify themselves somehow. And that's where Bitcoin uses cryptography. So in cryptography, in asymmetric cryptography, you have what's called a key. So it's kind of a secret number that only you know. It's like a password. You go and you say like, hey, you know, here's the Bitcoins I want to spend. Here's my secret number. And then everyone lets you record that transaction. And so that's how you actually own the Bitcoin is because you know that secret number and nobody else does. And so in my case, like I had a secret number that corresponded to the Bitcoins that we had won through that bounty and through a long chain of events of, of making several backups and them all failing when I needed them, I ended up losing access to that um, particular number. And so as a result, I, I could no longer spend those Bitcoins. When did you start trying to get into the wallet? 
so I had uh, you actually tapped into the wallet um, already once or twice. Um, and then um, the next time was in, in, I think it was like July, August, thereabouts, um, 2011. And there was a service in the Bitcoin community, which was like a website you could go to and you could push a button and it would just send like a hundredth of a Bitcoin or something like that. So you could test it and play with it. And that service obviously was dependent on donations and contributions from the community. And so uh, Gavin Andreessen, who is the head of the Bitcoin project and, and um, was running that service, he reached out one day, he said like, hey, you know, you have that wallet, do you want to contribute some Bitcoins to the, fa to the faucet, this is the website's name. I was like, yeah, sure, I'd love to contribute to it. And then I went to try to log into the wallet, open up the wallet, and I realized that the copy that I was using day to day was no longer working. And so then I was like, no problem, I have backups. And so I tried to access the backups and I wasn't able to access those either. So that's really when I when it sunk in that I might have lost access. What is, what is the next step? Because my, my partner, I was going over your story and my my partner was like, what do you mean you cannot get your password back? Like, what what are you talking about? Because I feel like people might initially not believe if they don't know Bitcoin, they're like, you get a lawyer, get Bitcoin on the phone. Like the people don't know, like how, what, what is not computing about that? Pun intended. Yeah, exactly. I mean, let's go back to what we said earlier about bitcoin was sort of funded on the idea of, of no bailouts right and so unfortunately that cuts both ways right the, the way bitcoin is designed it's designed to enforce the rules completely without any sort of human intervention right it's sort of like these are the rules and whatever happens happens you know and so part of that is like well if you lose your key your claim to the Bitcoin is as good as anyone else's, right? It's like, you can't prove that you own them. You don't know the secret number. And, and so you're just like anyone else looking at the Bitcoins from the outside. What? How much is in your wallet right now? In that locked up wallet? That particular wallet, yeah. It's uh, 7,002 Bitcoin. Which equals what? It's like 200, $200 million, something like that. It's, it's, I can't even wrap my head around that amount. Right. So that's so it's interesting because it feels almost to me like it's this weird thing of like it, it it is your money, but it also isn't. It feels like when you like lose in the stock market and you're sort of just like, ah, oh, but I could have had. And it's like you could have, but it, it it's not it's fake money. <laughs> like you don't you don't have it because you don't you didn't have it. Does that make sense? Yeah. With this particular wallet, I have uh, like I said, I made several backups and one of those backups was a sort of like a it's a flash drive so it's like a usb stick the kind of like little usb drive thing it's a it's a very very highly secure encrypted one but theoretically you could break all the security and and get to the contents and that would be potentially would have the key on it still so um, there's still sort of this like slim chance that i'll one day be able to recover it to do that is you have to defeat all these security measures so it's kind of like mission impossible but like on a nanoscale yeah, it's an iron key, right? So if you use too many passwords, it, it deletes everything on it. Yeah, so the software on this on this USB key, um, like you say, it's an iron key, is designed such that you get like 10 tries at your password. And so if you don't know the password, I mean, 10 tries is not a lot, right? The main goal of, it, of, of trying to recover the, the coins would be to bypass that counter entirely. So you can get like a way to check, you know, billions of passwords per second until you find the right one. That, that would be the goal. So this is like not uncommon. Like there's people, right, that have there are a lot of people that 
bought in at this time and then didn't really expect it to become huge or didn't really think much of it and then are also locked out. There's like a good size chunk of people. Yeah, I would say it's somewhat inherent in the system. You know, like people always talk about the risks of cryptocurrency and like, I mean, from personal experience, like those risks are very much real. It's uh, it's just a fundamentally different way of, of thinking about digital property, if you will, right? Like it's, it's, if you own the key, you own the thing and nobody on the one hand, nobody can tell you otherwise, but on the other hand, nobody can help you if you, if you mess it up. It seems like the stakes are high to keep the rules has, how they are. Well, it's also like that's what makes Bitcoin unique. I mean, you know, if you just turn it into something that works exactly like the rest of the financial system, then it sort of loses its its purpose in a way. And if I want to have access to like raw, unadulterated cryptocurrency, I also like the idea that I have access to that. And not everyone has that either. So I think it's something that it's, it's you have to figure out what works for you personally. Why do you tell your story? Why are you open about this? Yeah, th I think there's sort of a couple of things. So one, you mentioned that there's a lot of people who are affected by this. And I think that maybe if I had heard a story like this, I would have tested my backups. I would have made more backups. I would have been a little bit more focused on it because, again, I was so you know, wrapped up in writing the software. I wasn't really thinking about preserving those those bitcoins. And it's just it sucks. It's a it's a dumb way to lose money that you could have used for all kinds of things. It could have, could have been donated. It could have been, could have built something with it. There's so many things you could do with it. And even though it's just money, it still could have done a lot of good. So I, I feel dumb for, for wasting it. So that's one reason. The other reason is I am still on this quest to, you know, make payments better. I'm less focused on Bitcoin and cryptocurrency nowadays. I, I started my own company called Coil and we use different technology that I'm, I'm more interested in these days. And so for me, it was sort of like, hey, maybe if I tell the story, I can highlight some of the other things that maybe don't get a lot of airtime because everyone's so focused on like speculating on cryptocurrencies and, you know, number goes up or whatever. You know, there isn't that much room for some of the other projects out there that might be don't allow you to get rich, but maybe they would help with some of the payment stuff. So that's why I also go you know, do these interviews, to try to talk about some of that stuff. Is Coil something you created to fill in gaps? Yeah. So again, like I got into Bitcoin because I wanted to make, you know, make it easier for people to pay each other. And when I did get into Bitcoin, I realized that the way that blockchain works, it, you know, remember when I was talking about how you have this like shared ledger and we all have like this shared um, record of transactions. Well, the problem with that is that we have to be a very tight knit group. We have to be very well coordinated to keep that ledger exactly the same at all times. And that means that it's very hard for diversity and, and like somebody to experiment with a different way of recording a ledger, because if you do anything different, it doesn't fit with everyone else. And so I just started to realize that like my background is more with uh, the web and internet technology where I was used to a lot of experimentation, like everybody would make their own website and they would do things differently and so on. Whereas like in, in crypto, there was a lot of like, well, if you want to make a change to Bitcoin, you have to get like millions and millions of people to agree first before you can even try it. You know, I realized like some of the principles that make the Internet so flexible and future proof could be applied to payments. And so we came up with a with a protocol called Interledger and we made that all open, open source, free for everyone to use. And so now my company, Coil is sort of on a mission to 
tell people about that, uh, make that more known, build products that, that people can use. Um, one, I'll give you one example. We just uh, released an application called uh, Subset. And so what that does is if you have like a streaming subscription, for example, you can split the cost with your friends. And so you can save a little bit of money and, and your friend, friends can chip in for the subscription as well. There must be like ways to change how it currently works. Because I can't wrap my head around needing millions of people's okay to change anything. I mean, does that ever happen? Like, how, is, it, is it just kind of too rigid for people to continue using it how they were? I, I think that you have to separate between, you know, Bitcoin itself and then this broader, you know, crypto space, if you want to call it that. It, it reminds me a lot of the sort of early dot-com kind of internet days when there was a lot of hype a lot of people invested and said it's going to change everything and the old rules don't apply and all this kind of stuff and yes there was a big awakening of like actually like a lot of these promises don't hold up to scrutiny but at the same time among all the noise there were some pretty interesting ideas that did become pretty transformative afterwards I'm from Germany originally, and, and so my grandmother still told me about like hyperinflation. And when she was four years old, um, th this is kind of when three to four years old is when hyperinflation happened in Germany. And so she doesn't remember much firsthand, but she remembers being hungry all the time and, and that sort of thing. And so when I see, you know, people saying like, hey, we can have super low interest rates and, and finance lots of spending off of just printing money and it's never going to cause inflation. I do get a little bit worried where like, I don't understand this well enough myself, but like, I like the idea that there's like some kind of a plan B because like one of the things is like when currency really just goes away and like the, the system breaks down and you have nothing to fall back on and you're le left trading cigarettes or whatever. Like, you know, I, I think I'd rather have Bitcoin or something in, in that vein than nothing at all if, if, if there's a real, real problem. And obviously nobody hopes that happens. It's the fear of risk, but also the, the paranoia that we will be trading cigarettes for, for like, I don't know, like as currency in the apocalypse or whatever. There's another way of doing it that's been proposed called proof of stake. Um, the difference is that we all sort of vote essentially on which version of the ledger we want to have. And that sounds really good initially, but the, the stake part is that because there's no real identity, right? We're all anonymous. Um, the voting, the votes are based on how much money you have. And so you can see how that might be a bit of a problem as well. Personally, there's a there's a solution that I really like, um, which is called federated consensus. We have to first recognize that that's a voluntary thing. So, for example, you know, when I go to the grocery store and I agree that I don't just walk out with the groceries, I have to go to the cashier and have to pay and they accept dollars. And like all of that is is a form of agreement. And like we agree on which court we go to. If something goes wrong, we agree that we'll hire a lawyer, like all these kinds of rules and legal things and everything is societal agreement, something's called a social contract. You know, the reason that's there is because it makes my trip to the grocery store a lot less friction you know like i don't have to argue over what currency to use i don't have to battle over do you even own the groceries so we can just go to groceries and walk out with with our purchase and so it's no different in the world of cryptocurrencies right like we want to be on the same ledger we got to recognize that the next step is to recognize that there's certain people that we want to transact with like the grocery store I go to, right? And so I care about being in consensus with the people around me, the people I deal with, the people I transact with, the people I trade with, etc. The 
the idea behind federated consensus is to essentially write down like what is the list of people whose opinions you care about and then there's an algorithm that looks at what everyone's lists are and then matches them up essentially and then that's how we get to an agreement how is everyone agreeing to this ledger like it seems so simple and then also like but then it, it like how does anyone agree to anything, I guess? If you could explain that, that would be great. Well, again, you know, we start with the idea that we want to agree. Um, and so as long as we can say, like, the, the important question is, who do we want to agree with? Like, I started to realize that, like, when you're trying to figure out how to make a cryptocurrency network work well, you are also thinking about a very similar question of how to make a government work well or a society work well. When you started breaking down and you've all decided that the grocery store does this, you've all, and then my brain broke where I was like, <laughs> why did we decide that? We all just do these things that we think are, that's, we all just agree that you go to the court. Like you, you broke it. You yep, broke yep. it. I hope I expanded it, you know? Um, but just to be fair, like I, I still get, you know, stunned when I think about this too. It's, it is really interesting, but to to, to answer your question, right? So we want to agree. And so how do we how do we know that we've agreed? Well, we can just look at the people that we want to make sure we're on the same page with and see what they've said. And if they said, yes, we're going to go with this ledger, with this version, then you can sort of say, okay, you can breathe a sigh of relief. So I'm, I'm safe now because the people I want to transact with, they say it's the same ledger that I have, so we're good. It's essentially a scheme where we all uh, propose the transactions that should go into the ledger. And then any transaction that are at all controversial, we say like, let's save them for the next ledger, essentially. And so the transactions that get in are the ones that clearly are assigned with the right key and they, they don't create any money out of thin air and like the sort of transactions we all agree on. And then anything that's kind of weird, we're going to deal with it in the next ledger. And that's how you make it more likely to, to be on the same ledger at any given point in time. But if it's anonymous, like and everyone can see the transaction doesn't don't people go like wait a minute like what who's this person or why is this happening with so much money yeah so that's actually a big difference i think between proof of work proof of stake and federated consensus so in proof of work you can be totally anonymous um you're basically just you know if you're one of the people making the ledger i should say right like there's sort of a difference between how the consensus occurs versus how the transactions occur, like how money moves. And we're talking about purely about consensus right now. So in proof of work, I can publish my work that I've done this mathematical puzzle. Uh, I can publish that anonymously and nobody knows who really did that. In proof of stake, it's sort of a pseudonymous thing where you can see that account XYZ has voted this way, but you don't necessarily know who the physical person who owns that account is or the, the, the entity, legal entity. And then with federated consensus, because it's trying to tie into the real world and the people you actually care about, that is actually tied to their actual identity. So they might have something on their website that says, this is our key. And so when you see this key, this is the one you should look at in federated consensus. So it depends on what the consensus mechanism is as to how anonymous it is. I would say that where you really care about privacy is on the transaction side, not the people who are validating the ledger and coming to consensus, but the people who are actually using the network and submitting transactions. Those are the people who you want to protect their privacy. So I think it's actually fine for the people who run the network to be public. It's sort of like the same thing as like, you want transparency in the government, but you want privacy for the citizens kind of thing. Is there this idea that crypto is apolitical, but like it really wouldn't be? Like, let's say, you know, when you talked about go somewhere good, like, 
you're like, listen, U.S. government, like get me my money back from Bitcoin and we can end world hunger or something. Is, is it just like this thing where it's presented as apolitical, but then it, it, you can't really make money apolitical? You can't. Yeah, I think you're you're very astute to point that out. Like it took me years of spending time in the crypto space to realize just how political it actually was. I think when I first heard about Bitcoin, the way it was sort of presented to me was like, hey, we don't want to deal with all this political stuff. We don't want to deal with all this human element. We want to just make it pure math, right? There was a big debate about whether to start a Bitcoin foundation, you know, an organization that could support Bitcoin. And I remember being one of the people who thought that it would be too centralized. It would be like something that people could get in charge of and then exert influence over Bitcoin. And uh, so I was kind of against it. And then they um, basically held another vote minus the people who voted against it the first time. And so I realized like it's actually pretty political in terms of like, you know, there are people that have more influence, less influence and so on. In most cases, um, the the votes and, and everything to do with that governance process is encoded in the ledger itself. So whatever software you're using to access the ledger would also tell you about that. Realistically, and this kind of goes back to this whole like, do we need banks question? Realistically, most people are not going to. Right, they don't pay attention to that. I understand that. Um, I have two more questions. One is I'm so curious how you feel about the way that the media covered your story. Because I think people are looking for stories that will make sense to people who aren't involved in cryptocurrency and stories that are salacious and stories that are like this thing. Look at how dangerous it is. Or the schadenfreude of like, look at how bad it was for that guy, but it won't be bad for you or whatever. So like, how do you feel about the way that like media who what who maybe the journalists are not super versed in crypto, like the way that your story was is presented in different in different forms, in different websites, in different stories, you know? I think the way that the, the mass media sort of works is it's very much about it's a very competitive process. It's very much about, you know, what gets the most clicks, what gets the most, um, you know, retweets and all that kind of stuff. And so if you're like in my situation, for example, with a story like this, it very quickly in their minds gets sort of categorized. Okay, this is a human interest story. You know, for me, the, the value in a story like this is having other people learn from it, you know, whether it's a conversation like this, where like maybe somebody learned something about crypto or, you know, it's just, hey, I, I heard about this guy losing his Bitcoin, so I'm going to go make a backup right now, you know, and, and you know, feel that, you know, if it saves one person's Bitcoin, it's already worth my time, you know? Yeah, I think money, money media specifically, I have a lot of problems with because I think they present these stories that are very nuanced in these very bite-sized ways that actually cause problems for people. And even I would say like largely the way that the media has covered millennials has had really negative impacts politically and really negative impacts um, in terms of messaging for like what would benefit the largest people in my generation. I'm 33. Uh, and I think, you know, f there's been, there's these stories, especially when it comes to large amounts of money uh, that are covered in ways that, are not very empathetic and like so I was just curious you know I feel like everything is distilled to this little bite the guy who lost a billion dollars you know and it's like so rarely is that ever the point of the story or what you should take away from it or even a accurately reported so I was just I was so curious you know why 
tell your story and when you know it's going to be a thing that either people judge or people email you and tell you to do the try the same thing 45 you know 4500 times I'm sure you've gotten the same exact email. Why don't you just do this? That's what I would do. Why don't you just... And like, that's so indicative of money media. Yeah. The, the number one suggestion, by the way, is have you tried hypnosis? So that's the uh, most common... Hypnosis? <laughs> yeah. Wow. It's, uh, it's apparently very popular. A lot of people are like, you haven't thought of that one, have you? Well, first of all, I think there was a couple of phases here. Like one is when I actually lost the money. And I think my first reaction was sort of disappointment in myself, mostly like just how would you let that happen? And then I think there was sort of a, an acceptance phase where I'm kind of like, look, you know, I, I earned that money by making that video with my friend. I still have a lot of other contributions I can make to the community. So why am I sitting here all sad about myself? Why not just go back to work and kind of forget about it? Okay, final question. Should you invest, if you're listening, someone's listening, should you invest in crypto? Should you invest in Bitcoin? Well, that's a trap. <laughs> uh, trap, trick question. No. Welcome to Bad With Money. Um, it's all traps here. <laughs> no, um, well, here's, here's what I would say. So. First of all, recognize that it's a very different and very risky asset class, partly because it is still very new. So Bitcoin hasn't been around 15 years ago, and we don't know if it will be around in 15 years or even five years for that matter. The next thing I would say is because it's so different, that does make it interesting to look at, right? Because it's like, you know, a, a lot of your listeners are familiar with the concept of diversification. So you have like a bunch of different stuff. So if one thing goes under, you might still have something else that did well in that scenario, right? I wouldn't put too much money into it just because of how volatile it is. It could literally go to zero, whereas like your house is probably not going to go to zero, it, you know, especially you can still live in it. So I, I think if you if you know about like these basic principles and you do a little bit of research into the thing itself and maybe ask some people who you know that know a little bit more about it, I would say that within crypto, again, I, I do get increasingly concerned about proof of work because of the environmental impact that it's having. You know, it's one thing if that was necessary to make crypto work. But as we've talked about on, on this on this very conversation, there are other ways of doing it that have next to no environmental impact. If I'm selling a car, Bitcoin's not like a car where you could make it more recyclable or something like that. It's literally like driving a car into a wall and then buying another one, driving it into the wall. It's like it's a completely avoidable environmental impact. And so I do think that I hope that more people who invest in crypto kind of look around, see some of the different options, do a little bit of research and, and maybe not just buy the first thing they see. But that, that's sort of my two cents. Everybody has got to get advice from somebody qualified, though. Like, don't listen to someone who you heard on a podcast. <laughs> I don't know what disclaimer you give, but, you know, same applies to me. Thank you for coming on the show. Where can people find you and more about your work? Uh, you can find me on Twitter. I'm just moon. Uh, one word. Nothing to do with crypto going to the moon. I've picked that name many years before. Um, you can also find my company at coil.com. And then um, that app I mentioned, Subset. Um, so if you want to share your subscriptions, you can find it at subset.com. Thank you so much. Thank you. It was great. Uh, so, so much fun to be on. Next, we're going to talk to Clara Volstead, an NFT artist who shifted her focus from painting and other fine art to art created originally online, aka the native digital art we talk about. My name is Clara Volstead, and I am an artist from Canada, and I do work within NFTs. 
So I'm, I apologize in advance because this is going to be an incredibly basic interview, I'm sure. And I've listened to other interviews with you and I'm like, oh man, here we go. Um, so what is, what is your background in terms of like being an artist? Yeah, I've just kind of like always been working in the arts. I used to be big into painting. I did photography for a while as like a job. And then I got more into painting and kind of designy stuff for a while. And then I ended up getting into 3D work about a year and a half ago. Was it mostly the 3D work that led to figuring out putting work into NFTs? Not really. So I was kind of, it was the second year, the second summer of the pandemic. And I was kind of like looking for new things to sort of work with. And I had no idea about NFTs at the time. So I downloaded Blender, which is like a 3D modeling software and just kind of started playing around with it. And um, I'd, I'd worked with it a little bit before just from like making video game stuff way back in the day when I was like 14 or whatever. And I just kind of was like, okay, let's like play with some 3D and like kind of see what I can make. So that sort of was became a bit of a addiction for a few months. And then I heard from one of my friends about NFTs back in, um, I think October of 2020, I started minting, I minted my first piece in October and November. What are NFTs? <laughs> so NFTs are a way of verifying original ownership over digital assets. Okay. So yeah, my, my producer said that it was kind of like a title or a, to a car or a deed on a home. Yeah, exactly. Right. Because if you think about the ownership of anything, right, it's basically like a verified proof that you own it. So say with your car, right, you have the piece of like you have your registration within the car. And within a database on the government's website. With NFTs, it's that except it's all user created and verified not by one body, but by a collective that's all running the same ledger and verifying the same ledger. What does it mean to mint? To mint is to attach uh, basically a block of information on the blockchain to an image, basically an, an immutable, uneditable, never ending ledger, like basically, it's an only input log of transactions, right? So when you like mint a piece, it's you're submitting a transaction to the blockchain, which says, okay, this piece now exists. And this is the image that goes along with it. When you do that, it's permanently on the blockchain. And it's like, set up there as a transaction and then it keeps track of that kind of just like within the ecosphere and all, and it, then it's verified just by all the computers running the Ethereum blockchain. So yeah, what is the blockchain? So the blockchain is uh, <laughs> so the blockchain's basically a decentralized autonomous version of the internet where every computer is kind of working together to say like this happened at this time and then all of the other computers verify it so that's what gives it legitimacy i guess and that's why you can't just say like oh i have an ethereum where are these computers it's everybody's computer everybody's computers so when you hear about people mining bitcoin or mining ethereum or mining you know whatever hosting nodes for money basically they're doing they're the people who are running the blockchain so there's like I don't know how many, what the number is, but say there's 100,000 computers worldwide that are all mining Bitcoin. They're the ones that are actually like processing the transactions within the ecosphere to make sure the, that everything is accurate and verified. For me, I've always kind of been like, art is a scam in the way of like the prices and the, the traditional art market. Like, and so it's kind of interesting to see, like, I like what you said on this, this NFT Sundays episode about how nothing is valuable unless we decide it is. So is this like, am I right about any of this? So art in of itself is 
theoretically worthless and useless, but it's the cultural and significant value that like curators and collectors and artists put within it that is what gives it value, right? So, you know, you take the Mona Lisa, it's just canvas with paint on it. It's not technically worth that much, but it's one of the most valuable objects we have. The way I see it, there's pretty much two different worlds that exist within the NFT space. So there's kind of what the general populace hears about, which is the the profile picture craziness, you know, like the board apes and the crypto punks and whatever. That's one world that kind of exists almost in its own ecosphere where that makes up probably 90% of all NFTs, right? And then there's the fine art, which is like, super rare makers place foundation whatever right all of those kind of exist within their own bubble and there is crossover whereas money from one ecosystem can bleed into another or vice versa but a lot of the culture is pretty separate whereas the people who are buying nfts to flip and make money don't necessarily buy art like people buy art for super long-term investment right and like there is short-term gains to be had with buying high price, expensive, one-of-a-kind art, you know, the art market exists. But those people who are flipping profile pictures don't usually interfere as much and the other way around as well. And there's a lot of exceptions, but that's kind of what become a thing. The people that are doing the, the – what gets all the publicity and the people that are doing the sort of like, oh, I've, I've made an NFT of this GIF or I've made an NFT of something that already exists – is like wildly different than what you're describing, which is someone investing in in art. Although I think people's minds can't wrap around the idea that they don't ha- have the painting in their hands. Is that what's happening? Yeah, and like that's totally valid, right? Like I, I've bought tons of NFTs, but I also buy tons of traditional art, right? It's just depending on what you're, the reason you're purchasing it. Personally, I buy NFTs that I think have value as NFTs. So if it's natively digital, then buying a print doesn't feel like owning the physical thing, right? And a lot of people love to buy NFT paintings for the exact reason where they feel like they own the original and then the painting almost becomes obsolete. You know, if like a scan of the painting becomes obsolete because it's not immutable and and endlessly verifiable. Can you explain, uh, sometimes we break things down for people, the profile project, the profile picture project aspect of it? Yeah, so... The profile picture aspect of it is when you see like board apes and they're all kind of similar, but they all have like, say, like a different hat or a different, you know, face or whatever, right? Those are actually a collection of, say, 10,000 and they're generated from the same kind of pool of attributes, but they're all unique, whereas they pull different attributes and slap them all into one image and then mint that as the uneditable image. So there's like rarities and values assigned to each attribute. And then some attributes are more valuable than others because they're more rare. So it's it becomes the the same thing as say Pokemon cards, except yeah, that's what it reminds me more, of more more levels of complexity where there's there's more variations to each rare thing. How do you set the prices for your work? Yeah, I mean, I started at a few hundred bucks. Just like for me, I just slowly increased over time. Who who are the clients? Like who's who are buying these? Do you know? Is it like a select few? Yeah, so a lot of people within the space are usually natively Ethereum people. There are a few art collectors from like traditional art collectors within the space, but most of the people who buy these one of ones, we call them, you know, individual art pieces, are just people who 
appreciate art and already have like a big stack of Ethereum just because they're like, you know, they bought Ethereum at a dollar or whatever. And so they just buy artwork because they want to most of the time or because it's like a long term investment for them. So most of them just are people who invested a lot into Ethereum and then just have lots of Ethereum to play around with. That's that seems to be the case. I don't know. Everybody knows a guy who bought Ethereum at like 30 cents, right? Or like was like the guy at the office who was freaking out about buying Bitcoin in 2013. You know, those are the people who buy art now because they made a good call and now we're billionaires, you know. But I mean, tons of different people buy it. Do you think this is kind of a, a thing that's sustainable or it's like a maybe this will be how the art world works towards the future as more people are more familiar with, you know, the Gen Z, let's say Gen Alpha, who will be very natively digital? Yeah, so I think for the kind of world that I'm involved with, the more like one of one fine art side of things, I think that world will kind of be what it is now where it's not, you know, it just works alongside the normal art market, and mainly for natively digital pieces or pieces that kind of make more sense with NFTs. How do you know what to collect? Is it just people creating hype around their stuff? I personally just buy what I like. I've spent tons of money on just one of ones just because I like the art and I want to have a like a big collection. I mean, you've seen my collection, right? Like my digital gallery or whatever. Like pretty much all of those are one of ones. I just buy what I like. I was reading about like these kids. So one of the things, and I wonder too, if like the media hypes up only is like, is like kid teens are making millions of dollars and it's like five teens. Is that kind of the situation? Cause it'll be like this kid like made a thing and then they went with their parents to the bank and cashed out the Ethereum and it was like $60,000 and the parents were like, what is happening? In terms of the kids making all the money, there's almost like a weird, cause it, you want to invest in people who are really young because then they have their whole life ahead of them, right? I don't think it's a bad thing. Like, I think it's great that these kids are set up for life. One of my friends, she's 15, right? And um, she's made a whole schwack of money, you know, and her mom's amazing, right? I met her mom when we all went to New York. Super cool, you know, doesn't let her blow it all on anything, right? Super managing, you know, helping her with taxes, everything. And I think in that circumstance, it's amazing, right? And I think when the parents get involved in a big way, because kids should not be responsible for millions of dollars in any sense. I think when the parents get involved, it can be a huge blessing, right? If the parents are responsible and the kids are responsible, then that's like your college paid for. That's your first house paid for. That's everything paid for, right? But also when you dump millions of dollars on a kid, that messes with them, right? Because it puts that expectation on them that they're always going to exceed that and keep building on top of that. And say if the market crashes, then these kids are left never going to be able to make that same amount of money again, probably. If you bought Ethereum like 10 years or I don't know, five years ago or something, are most people keep, you said people are keeping it within the, the crypto sphere or are people like cashing out and being like, I don't know what Ethereum's going to be worth in five years. So here's my million. I mean, even when people cash out the money, the Ethereum is still like Ethereum doesn't go anywhere, right? It's not traded in for cash. It just goes to another person who's willing to buy it for cash, you know? It's hard even to sometimes wrap your mind around NFTs, although when you use the the comparison to a house, you know, deed on a house or a, even even the fine art world, it makes a little bit more sense. I think what got a bunch of hype in the beginning was like, I've minted Michael Jordan's, <laughs> you know, dunk or yeah. whatever. And people were like, yeah, this yeah, is totally. stupid. Yeah, or like memes and stuff. You can literally mint anything. I mean, I'm minting 3D objects now. It's like 3D models of objects that 
you can view in 3D and then that's what you actually own. One of my good friends, Sam J, they just sold a piece that's a 3D scan or it's a 3D model and also a physical piece that goes along with it. Like they printed it in 3D with a 3D printer, you know, the things that do the plastic or whatever. And then they cast that in like what looks like marble, right? It's super cool. And then that was what somebody bought. So it's like a limitless, not limitless, but it's a, it's a technology that allows for a lot of, you know, you can do pretty much whatever you want with it. And I don't think there's any like one label to put on it. It's just a, a tool, right? At the end of the day. So I'm uh, like, I'm a transmasculine person and, and mm-hmm. we, you were talking on NFT Sundays about sort of like the, the way in which people almost want to decentralize their look or like, or like they can do things behind the computer without kind of needing to, I don't know, needing to like be a person like what I feel like there's like a huge trans community in the crypto sphere. And like, I just was wondering, like, what what you've seen there and why and why that thrives. Yeah, there's totally a huge trans community. When I first started, there was only a few. But now, I mean, tons of people exist, right? I think it's kind of a perfect playground for people who are, you know, experimenting with gender. And I've seen a lot of people come out even within the community over the course of, you know, the last year. Why do you think that is? Well, um, I mean, it does let you present in any way you want, right? And say, you know, I'm not on hormones, I'm not, you know, I'm not transitioning, I want people to perceive me in a certain way, then I can change my profile picture. And I can, you know, I can do you can be the person you want to be to a certain extent, right? In a lot of ways, it's a playground where your your personality can exist on its own outside of your physical form. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, in the in the one piece, I made the um, icon of a new future that's kind of talking about that where it's not God's creation in a art history sense of the human being. It's the human being's creation of a new form, which is online identity, where you can kind of be whatever you want. It's like really funny to me that there's so many straight white dudes who take, say, like a picture of, a, of an ape or a monkey or a raccoon or whatever, and say, I identify so completely and fully with this picture because it has this certain attribute. And they, then they don't understand being trans. It's like, <laughs> it's literally that, you know, it's literally that. Like, what's the ish, you know? I, I do, you know, I do understand why trans people would be drawn to this like how that idea came about and how you were like wait a minute I can use nfts to to pursue like the the trans surgeries that I want yeah so that was I think I started that piece in June or something or that whole project in June when I mean, I was pursuing surgeries anyways, right? I've been trying to get, I got FFS and breast augmentation. So I was, I've been pursuing that for a long time regardless, but it was when I kind of went to a doctor and then got like a bill put in front of me and I was like, oh, this is way more money than I could ever muster. So I saw these projects doing so well and I, and I wanted to, originally I thought maybe doing a fundraiser, just like, you know, people donating. I was like, okay, how do I give people something in return for say donating to this this thing I need to do, you know? So I thought about maybe doing like an edition of 2000 of the certain piece. And I was like, wait, why don't I do one of these generative projects, right? Then everybody gets something really cool and unique. And then that's when I built the project. And yeah, that's kind of what led on into that. So it's fundraiser, but also I wanted to give people something cool and a piece of my art because I knew like a lot of people didn't want to pay, you know, whatever price I was charging at the time for one of my one-on-one pieces. And also I wanted to like get a lot of art out there, you know? So yeah, that's kind of what kind of led to that. It's almost like a marketing push. The The flip side is like all of these things that are, you know, eco-friendly crypto art and how do you make it in a way that doesn't just completely zap energy 
So I've had people on the show to talk about ESGs and they were like, you're not going to get rich from this show, which like, wow, what a newsflash. We're in season 10. Like, <laughs> you're not going to get rich from this show. Um, but so is it like this, this, the same kind of thing where it's like, we're going to do clean NFTs and it's like, no one wants that. For certain things, it's a little bit blown out of proportion. Like when you're buying one of ones, it's not that much energy relative. Like people are like, it takes 10 billion trees to mint one piece. And the level of pieces that I'm making, it makes sense. I'd say like 1% of the money in NFTs exists on these clean platforms just because people are nervous and wary of platforms that aren't Ethereum because Ethereum is such a strong economy and there's so much money within it that it'll never go out of business. Tezos is used as like a a low-cost transactional type thing. Like it didn't exist as a platform to be built on. It was kind of more of like, oh, like you want to send your friend five bucks. You know, that's that was the original purpose for Tezos. And then people figured out how to mint on there. You, you use less power, but that's also because there's way less demand on the servers for Tezos than there is Ethereum. And also proof of stake is riskier where, I mean, I've done a little bit of research on this side of things, but proof of stake, which is the system that clean NFTs use, it is riskier because there's a lot more room for error. Like a lot of the reasons that Ethereum is so backed up and secure is that it uses that power to verify everything. Whereas Tezos, there can be issues with verification. It doesn't happen very often, but when it does happen, it could be a huge issue. Where can people find you and and more about you and your work? Sure. So my website is clara.art. That's probably the best place to find everything. All my links are on there. I have all my work on there. Everything's kind of conglomerated to one website. So yeah, that's probably the best place to find me. Thank you so much. Yeah, I'm also on Twitter at kvolstead or on Instagram at volstead. There's always an incentive to keep money insular. You make a fee off selling your NFTs, that fee is paid in crypto, and then you buy more NFTs. It's Sotheby's, it's Wall Street. It's nothing new and nothing that's going to, in its current iteration, remake our economy. It's still beholden to the world market. And it's still dependent on that pesky little variable, humanity. Next week, we'll learn all about that from Dan Olson. Good morning or good night. That'll make sense to you next week. I would love to hear from you. Be sure to send me an email at gabbyisbadwithmoney at gmail.com or leave me a voicemail at 844-474-4040. You can also email me a voice memo if you prefer. Join our online communities too. We're on Instagram, Discord, TikTok, Patreon, and Facebook. Links to all of these will be listed in the episode description. Also, please leave us a five-star Apple review. It really helps. And don't forget to listen to the show the day it drops so we can get on the charts and spread the word. Also, if you'd like to buy an NFT of the show, I'm just kidding. Thank you. Love you. Bye. Done.